Welcome to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. The Atlantic Council serves the global community by bringing together world leaders, foreign policy experts, and great thinkers to shape today's policy choices and navigate the global challenges of the 21st century. In the following program, the Atlantic Council holds its annual Distinguished Leadership Awards. Each year, the Atlantic Council honors several distinguished leaders for their versatile contributions to the strengthening of the transatlantic partnership. This year's awards took place on Monday, June 5, 2017. Ladies and gentlemen, pray silence for a special tribute to Zbigniew Brzezinski. On May 26, Zbigniew Brzezinski, one of the great strategists and statesmen of our age, passed away. He was my professor, my mentor, my inspiration. Few voices in the world, if any, have been as consistently wise, principled, and visionary, even when he, what he had to say was not popular. He dedicated his life to serve and defend those transatlantic values we've celebrated tonight. We at the Atlantic Council were fortunate to have him as a counselor and international advisory board member. As his son Ian, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, recalled, his father's was advice that everyone should have, that they, everyone needs a cause that is greater than oneself. Ian, in a moment, will provide a tribute to his father. We're delighted he's here, and our hearts go out to him and his family. But for the moment, please turn to the slideshow that captures the prolific writer, statesman, teacher, and advisor to countless presidents, and above all, family man, Dr. Zbigniew Brzezinski. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Ian Brzezinski. Thank you. On behalf of my brother, Mark, my sister, Mika, and my mother, Mushka, thank you, Fred. Thank you all for this wonderful tribute. Let me thank also the Vice President for his kind words about my father. I very much appreciate the, uh, the wonderful montage of photographs that you showed. They really capture the essence of my dad. I particularly like the one of my family on my father's uh, favorite place in Maine, his summer home, Tranquility Base, the picture of my, my father and the three little children. I value it because it's proof that I actually had a head hair at one point. <laughs> What I'd like to do is share with you a little bit about how I will remember my father. I've always been struck by the duality of his love for Poland and the United States. Family lore has it that when the ship that bought him as a child to North America reached its destination, everyone aboard crowded to the shore side of the deck, straining to see their new home, except one. My father remained on the seaside, facing the Atlantic, looking out toward Poland. The unfair realities of the post-World War II order led him to choose the United States as his new home. He was impressed by our nation's vibrancy, optimism, and values, and the opportunities and responsibility it has to promote and protect freedom around the world. He was loyal and committed 
to his adopted home until the very end. But he never lost his love for his native country. That only grew and grew. He was an enthusiastic, a truly enthusiastic father who injected into his family an exuberance, a love for the outdoors, yes, and a heavy dose of geopolitics. He orchestrated two or three times a week structured family discussions that challenged his children, my brother and sister and I, to think critically on subjects ranging from U.S.-Soviet competition to the role of the Catholic Church to the latest teenage rage that was sweeping across the nation. His mandated family walks, and these were every weekend, along the Potomac and the shores of Maine, fostered strong, enduring family bonds. And that really showed in his last weeks as our family came together. I could go on for hours recounting the near-death experiences on his small 19-foot family boat, crammed with dogs, kids, and parents, challenging the deepest fog and the worst seas to reach a favorite isolated picnic spot so he could be alone with us. That was my dad. He was always full of sound advice regarding school, careers, and his children's families. Fred mentioned one core bit of advice. That advice was a regular refrain. Everyone should have a cause that is greater than oneself. His life was defined by it. As a scholar, he studied authoritarian and hegemonic regimes to identify their structural weaknesses. In government, he swung that intellectual sword in the fight to free the captive nations of Europe. My father believed that having a cause higher than oneself provides a powerful source of personal motivation, satisfaction, and fulfillment. We are all saddened to have lost him, yet we should celebrate his boundless energy, his enthusiasm, and sharp wit, and always be inspired by the legacy, lessons, and causes that he left. Thank you. Uh, two, two very brief notes before we enter the final portion of this evening. First of all, I want to extend a special thanks to Lockheed Martin, uh, the most consistent, in fact, the only principal sponsor for the last decade of this dinner. Uh, and I want to thank particularly Marilyn Houston, our International Advisory Board member, Robert Rangel, and Dan Feta, who is here. So thank you so much for your consistent support over a decade. We really appreciate it. Finally, we are running a little later than we usually do. Uh, it's just the time when people get started in Spain, uh, but it's uh, a little bit late here. Uh, I hope you agree that the awardees and the, and the purpose of this evening is worthwhile. Uh, the final two awardees tonight, Princess Haya and Renee Fleming, are certainly worth uh, the entire evening. So thank you very much. Please turn to the screens. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the President and CEO of the Children's National Medical Center, Dr. Kurt Newman. Thank you and good evening. It is an absolute honor and privilege to introduce tonight's next awardee, Her Royal Highness Princess Haya Bint Al Hussein. When I first met 
Princess Haya in Dubai, we spoke at length, not only about Al Jalila Children's Specialty Hospital, which is the hospital that carries the name of Princess Haya's daughter, but also about our shared interest in helping the world's youth grow up healthy and strong. Since that time, I've come to personally admire Princess Haya for her rare and special combination of strong leadership and compassionate spirit. With these qualities, she has become a leading international advocate for children's needs and for humanitarian progress around the globe. She has worked tirelessly to provide food aid, health services, and social services to the poor and to communities in crisis in Jordan, Haiti, Cambodia, Ethiopia, and many other nations. In times of crisis, the princess can often be found at the center of relief efforts, working on the ground to find new, innovative ways of helping those in need. To each venture, Her Royal Highness brings warmth, kindness, and determination to uplift and empower those who are disadvantaged. In March of 2007, Princess Haya was appointed the chairperson of International Humanitarian City, IHC. Based in Dubai, this is one of the largest supply depots for aid in the world. In September of the same year, Princess Haya was selected by UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon as messenger of peace. This is the highest honor bestowed by the United Nations on a global citizen. And it is a fitting role for a leader who has devoted herself to aiding the most vulnerable among us. Tonight, I am extremely proud to help the Atlantic Council recognize Princess Haya's contributions to the global community by bestowing a Distinguished Leadership Award. Now, please join me in welcoming Her Royal Highness to the stage. Mr. Kempe, Governor Huntsman, Admiral Michelle Howard, Your Excellency Jens Stoltenberg, Rene Fleming, and Mr. William Ford Jr. Your Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to start by thanking Mr. Newman for that generous introduction. I'm privileged to be introduced by a man who's been instrumental in cementing such a solid bridge between the United Arab Emirates and the United States, and by working tirelessly to do so through a partnership that saves children's lives, through the very best pediatric medical care possible. And in all honesty, I don't know of any calling better than that that cherishes innocent lives of children and gives them a start to life. It's really difficult to describe how truly overwhelmed 
and humbled I feel to be here tonight. I want to express my heartfelt thanks to the Atlantic Council for selecting me to accept this award and for the incredible humanitarian efforts made by the people of the UAE and our leaders. I grew up in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, but 14 years ago, I began to call the UAE my home. Seven federally unified emirates, states that had all survived a harsh desert climate, enduring hunger, poverty, high infant mortality, and disease. Of course, the discovery of oil had enabled the UAE's founding fathers to improve living standards in ways never dreamed of before. But if you look beyond the glittering skyline, it's the spirit of the UAE, its people, and its leadership that captured my heart, and I found there are people in the leadership that never forgot the hard times they lived through, and whose humanitarian values and foreign policy were both built on that memory and that resilience. It's no accident that the OECD records the UAE as the world's most generous humanitarian donor as a percentage of its GDP. With a population of only 9 million, in 2015, the UAE government gave $5 billion to aid projects. And when you add private donations, the UAE aid tops $8 billion a year. And everything, absolutely everything, that I am able to do is completely thanks to that generosity of spirit. The ways in which, in, in many ways, the UAE that I fell in love with is a place much like this great country when it started, a land of dreams, a land of tolerance and diversity, inclusivity. Today, the UAE has the highest percentage of women in higher education of any country in the world. We have an incredibly diverse population from 200 countries with every religious faith. And we even have the world's first minister of tolerance. When friends ask me what the UAE has done in the fight against Daesh, I love to point out that during the first coalition airstrike, the lead plane was from the UAE, and it was flown by a woman. But as we meet here tonight, in comfort and in great company, it's around 4.30 in the morning in the world's youngest nation, South Sudan. It will be a couple of hours before the first glimmer of light appears on the northeast, north, northeast African horizon. Far too many in South Sudan are welcoming this day as another day of hunger. There's no comfort in the darkness that enshrouds the world's starving. Their nights are punctuated by hunger, thirst, disease in the camps, and the air is thick with despair. I'm often reminded of the proverb that the darkest hour is just before dawn. But I also wonder just how dark the South Sudanese night has to become before we can welcome a dawn of hope. 
Early this year, the United Nations declared a state of famine in South Sudan. The UN doesn't use this term lightly. It's the first time in six years that any country had met the grim criteria for this label. The famine designation only applies to a small part of South Sudan, but 20 million other people there in Yemen, Somalia, and Nigeria are also on the brink of famine. That's more than the combined population of this entire region, Virginia, Maryland, the District of Columbia, West Virginia, Delaware, and Rhode Island. And this is not just a problem for South Sudan. It's a problem for all of us. Famine and war have already created 1.8 million refugees in that region. And hunger, dislocation, and despair are incubators for intolerance and terrorism. Have no doubt, they are the weapons of war that terrorist groups and corrupt politicians use. And it's up to us to take those weapons away. Today, there are more than 65 million refugees and displaced people worldwide, higher even than after World War II. In my native Jordan, Lebanon, southern Turkey, they've all hosted roughly 4 million Syrian refugees. Millions more have fled to Europe, North America, and the Gulf. When I speak to those victims in those humanitarian crises, they tell me that they all just want to live in peace, to love their families, and to feed and care for their children. They wonder why they must pay for the failure of their politicians and others. They ask if they've been forgotten. And this is where the anger of forgotten is born. Places where people have absolutely nothing to lose. The Atlantic Council of America has a great history, and as an organization, it can and does help to make a difference in this world. And all of the other award winners tonight have shown through their dedication and everything they have done what's possible. For me, it's a great honor to be among them, but it's also a great honor to be among people of influence, people like you. I wanted to say that you're not alone in shouldering the burdens that you face. The UAE and many other countries, you will always find willing and credible partners who are committed to humanitarian diplomacy as you are. Today, as in the days when the Atlantic Council was founded, the world looks to the United States for leadership. American involvement is crucial to ending the kinds of conflicts that have created the threat of mass starvation in the East Africa and Yemen, and so many other places of worry in the world. Together, we can create a different future for our children. But I start tonight by thank you for this award. Thank you.
Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage the Executive Vice Chair of the Atlantic Council, Adrian Arsht. Well, that's the closest I will come to a voice like that. It does take your breath away. We all know Renee Fleming for her singing, for her musical accomplishments. So I'm not going to review that. You can do that either in your program or on Wikipedia. But I do want to tell you a few things about her global or international accomplishments. For example, she sings in English, German, French, Italian, Russian, Spanish, Portuguese, Mandarin, Governor Huntsman, I imagine you could sing with her, Japanese, and Elvish, which is from The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King. For many years, as she's traveled the globe, she has met with many, many heads of state, from our President Obama. She performed before the Queen Elizabeth. She was in Japan and performed before the Empress of Japan with Placido Domingo. She sang at the 25th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall. She has sung at the Nobel Peace Prize ceremony and the 20th anniversary of the Czech Republic's Velvet Revolution. Additionally, she serves on the board of the Asia Society, and she works with the Polyphony Foundation, which is an organization that seeks to foster friendship and understanding between Jewish and Israelis, uh, Jewish and Arab Israelis, through the practice and performance of classical music by young people of all backgrounds. She is truly a dynamo on and off the stage. Her arts advocacy is well known, and she currently serves as the artistic advisor at the Kennedy Center. And so, without further ado, I would like to present the Atlantic Council's Distinguished Artistic Leadership Award to Renee Fleming. so much, excellencies, Atlantic Council leadership and fellow honorees and esteemed guests. Oh, it's truly an honor to be in your presence this evening and to receive this distinguished leadership award. Um, do you know, I was thinking about uh, what it takes to get on stage. It's mastering a very unruly instrument made up entirely of involuntary muscles and we have to work hard to achieve a virtuosity that is typically unamplified, the voice. And with this mastery, singers tour the world. Oh, we are first in concert halls and opera houses, major capitals, and then to farther shores. At a key point in my education, I received inspiration from my Fulbright Scholarship to Germany. Yes, please continue to support the Fulbright Scholarship. It's so important. And being steeped in the language and culture of Goethe enabled me to begin to think about cultural history as the part of us that is noble, our higher selves. And because as classical musicians, we represent the history of music, we're invited, as Adrian just said, 
to the tables of some of the most illustrious leaders of our time. It became clear to me some years ago that artists practice a powerful form of soft diplomacy in these moments. And I'm gratified that the Atlantic Council recognizes the role that music and the arts can play in fostering international cooperation. And today, with the overwhelming amount of information we receive on a daily basis, messaging of important initiatives and ideas face an uphill battle. The bright spotlight of celebrity, the power of actors and musicians to reach the public about climate change, poverty, and health on an international basis is compelling. For example, two days ago, Dr. Francis Collins and the National Institutes of Health joined me at the Kennedy Center for an exploration of neuroscience and music. And as a result, the NIH is adding music to their brain initiative, citing research showing that it probably predated speech in the evolution of human beings. And further, during this convening, our former Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, noted that feelings of isolation and loneliness in society are reaching epidemic proportions. It's little wonder that we describe so many perpetrators of violence as lone wolves. What science has discovered is that music triggers a chemical response in the brain that actually reduces feelings of isolation and increases a sense of social connection and trust. If political alliances promote human relationships on a larger scale, please remember that the arts can strengthen those relationships. We can join you not just as entertainment, sorbet in a meal of substantive conversation, but as partners in your work to promote peace and harmony. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. And we love to share our art. I'm happy to introduce to you a remarkable new talent, a soprano from the Domingo K. Fritz Young Artist Program at the Washington National Opera. Ladies and gentlemen, Raquel Gonzalez. Thank you so much.
Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes our awards dinner. Thank you so much for coming. We'll see you next year. Thank you for listening to the Atlantic Council Events Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at atlanticcouncil.org and follow us on Twitter at Atlantic Council. The Atlantic Council, working together to secure the future.